Welcome to the Ross Republic podcast. My name is Adrian Klee. I'm a partner at Ross Republic. Uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about how, how to drive successful transformation in financial services. I'm joined by Krista Holloman. He's the uh, founder of Divido. First of all, Krista, thanks a lot for taking the time uh, and to join us in our podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Awesome. Um, so just to give a short introduction to what you've done in the past, um, you're, as I said, founder of the finance platform Divido. You recently stepped down as uh, CEO as well after securing a very successful Series B round for Divido. Um, and uh, Divido, for the listeners that don't know it yet, is the world's largest white label platform for retail finance, more commonly known as Buy Now, Pay Later. And prior to starting Divido, Krista was hired by Glassdoor to launch it in Europe, which was subsequently um, acquired for over a billion US dollars. And before this, Krista helped traditional media companies like The Times and The Daily Mail in the UK, as well as Gannett, the largest new pa newspaper publisher in the US, to transition old business models uh, to monetize new digital channels. And we'll come back to that uh, in the podcast as well. Beyond that, Krista is the author of the Amazon bestseller, The Social Media MBA, and recently published a new book with Wiley called Transactional to Transformational, How Banks Innovate. Um, in the book, he tells untold stories about how leading global banks delivered new solutions to customers and businesses. And in this episode, we'll discuss some of the key learnings of building up Divido and as well how traditional banks can ensure a successful future. So I found it very interesting, Krista, that um, previously you, you worked with traditional media companies and obviously, you know, new digital distribution channels, digital advertising um, and, uh, you know, digital platforms, they basically all radically change the whole media landscape and um, how media companies operate. And I'm sure we all talk, we also talk about platforms in the banking space nowadays a lot. Um, are there any parallels that you see from how traditional media companies innovated versus banks at, uh, at this time? Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities. So uh, when I went to university, I, I wrote my thesis about the, uh, the newspaper industry. And, and one of the, the theories I was referencing is called the spiral of success, which means that as a business, you tend to keep what to do once made you successful, which means that if you start a newspaper, you print paper newspapers, uh, and that makes you rich then you'll be more inclined to continue to make more newspapers because that's the only thing you know that makes you rich. But obviously, um, what's happened with the internet is that people no longer need to buy the physical papers. So yeah. it's a, uh, it becomes a, a, a trap, effectively, for newspaper makers that they think they can solve this problem by making more or what once made them successful when they actually need to do something completely different. And yeah. that is a, a big mental hurdle for senior executives, the people that can control and influence the destiny of the business, the board yeah. or whatever. So there, and even like the, the kind of payments or the bonus structures that is sort of geared towards play it safe, you know, hit the sales numbers for, for, for next year, then you'll get your yeah. bonus. Um, and, and, and if you experiment and try something else and that fail, we might fire you because we already told you your job was to sell more newspapers, not to experiment and make, potentially make mistakes. So the mindset that I saw in the newspaper industry is very much the mindset that I, that I see in the banking industry. Again, they made their money in a certain way, and they think that's how they're going to continue to make money in the future. In yep. actual fact, they need to be very ballsy, gutsy, very brave and daring to say, actually, rules are changed, all change. Uh, we need to reimagine what we are and how we can continue to make money in the future. Yep. Um, I think the opposite example of that is, uh, is Nokia. 
you you might remember the the mobile phone company but they 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 didn't used to be a mobile phone company they started out i think it was in the logging in the forest industry and then they started yeah. doing wellies like uh, uh, shoes that are waterproof okay and then they you know ended up doing mobile phones so that is probably the extreme example on the other end when a company yeah. is disloyal to sort of fundamental business model all to, together but i think the truth <clears throat> is somewhere in the middle like yeah. you can't keep printing newspapers uh, when yep. you can't like reinvent the new mobile phone having been making boots uh, previously. Um, yep. Yeah. So there are lots of parallels, I think. Very interesting. Yeah, I guess in the banking industry, it's even a more special and uh, challenging case because of all the regulation and compliance around it, which basically trained all the people at Virgin industry to avoid risk taking and basically avoid everything you need to um, to innovate. Um, so I think we, we will come back to that as well in a bit. And also uh, prompted by a, a comment I saw um, that you made on LinkedIn about all of the new banks that are now coming out uh, with uh, buy now, pay later features. Um, for example, in Germany, number 26 has just launched a feature that lets you split expenses that you made already working uh, you know, with the um, number 26 card into several installments. Revolut, Monzo, they're all working on it or have launched it already. But um, I've also done some research in this space and I find it very interesting that there are obviously a variety of different models, how you can um, build up by now, pay later um, mechanics, how it works exactly for the user. And as far as I remember, you you have been a little bit critical because many of these new solutions don't take the merchant side into account, which is aligned with um, the success factors that I've researched a bit. So what's your view on all of on the booming by now, pay later space right now and, and all of these new features that are popping up? Yeah, I think that uh, these neobanks, they, every quarter or every year, they need to prove to their investors that they're worth more money as they go out and, and fundraise. Um, um, so they are desperately looking for new features and products and solutions or ideas that's going to be the next billion dollar valuation, you know, yeah. to their um add another billion to their valuation. Um, and they are obviously noticing companies like Klarna, which is, I think they still are the most valued, the highest valued fintech in, in Europe. Yeah. And clearly that, that is a buy now, pay later company. So they're looking at them thinking, well, hang on a second. They seem to be getting a lot of traction with investors and high valuations by doing this thing called buy now, pay later. What if we say we're doing buy now, pay later? We could also command some of that hype, some of that valuation. Yeah. Um, and the thing that people forget is that Klarna is a 16-year-old company. Yep. It's taken them 16 years to get to where they are today. Uh, and they've done that by having this singular focus on literally one product, yep. which is buy now, pay later. And they've obviously had lots of time to perfect that. They've invested hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't know exactly. I haven't added up the numbers, potentially billions yep. invested money and obviously revenue from clients uh, to build this fantastic platform. So it's kind of a joke. Uh, when Curve or N26 or whoever else says that, yeah, yeah, that's easy. We we already done it. We we um, we now enable buy now, pay later. But in actual fact, if it's the most vanilla approach you could possibly think of, which is for six existing customers that happens to have one of their cards, yeah. they happen to know that this feature is enabled once they made a purchase, and then happen to remember that this is available to log on to their bank or their app find the transaction and then convert it to buy now, pay later. 
that is a completely different user experience and customer proposition than yeah. the one that's made Klarna the Europe's most successful uh, fintech from a valuation perspective. So Visa and MasterCard has been offering this as a feature for many years. And very few banks have taken up them on the offer because it just doesn't work for consumers. It's hard yeah. to explain, hard to remember, and it and it's something um, that doesn't sort of drive incremental sales because the merchant isn't involved. They're not subsidizing the interest. Yeah, I think Curve is charging nineteen percent APR. You know, I might as well just go and borrow money then. You know, for for five percent or less or whatever. Um, so I think, yeah, that's the, my take on, on that, um, why, why they just, you know, vanilla approach is not going to give them anywhere near the kind of additional market valuation that they potentially hoped. I fully agree. Yeah, it's, it's also from a customer um, need perspective, quite interesting because most of these new neobank split pay solutions, they come, they're, they're basically available after you made the purchase. So obviously, um, I have the money, otherwise I could have not paid for it already. And then splitting it up is maybe more a luxury that you might do or not do. But ultimately, you already have made the purchase, whereas Klarna is there right at the shop, right, at, right basically at the point of need, um, where you could not potentially pay for certain goods or you know where you might have uh, might need some assistance or some some you know installment loan and i think that's that's a huge difference from a customer journey perspective as well because it's right there before you make the purchase and not after and that has massive implications and also on the on the customer journey and how you explain the product and so on so i guess that's um yeah that'll be interesting to see how 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 you know consumers pick up the offerings of the new neil banks now in this sort of split pay space and i would jump directly to to a topic um, that basically connects a little bit how banking, how the banking industry is shifting and what you've done at Devido. And if I would just describe it in my own words, what Devido has been doing, it's basically a white label platform that then connects lenders, retailers, and channel partners right at the point of sale. So it kind of opens up a new distribution channel for lenders that I would say maybe would otherwise not really reach these end customers directly at the point of interaction when they shop, for example, right at the checkout. Um, so it's more like a, a marketplace model, as far as I see it, where lenders compete um, to offer the most suitable credit line to a shopper. Um, and then you partners uh, with businesses such as banks, retailers and payment partners so that they can also then offer this buy now, pay later solution. Um, and you can, you can, of course, uh, elaborate more on, on that whole model because uh, you, you kind of built it. My first question would be, what triggered you to, um, to build Divido? Was that based on a market analysis or just on a personal pain point that you had? Well, I think um, there was a couple of observations, a couple of data points that was floating around in my world at the time, seven and a half years ago when, when I started uh, Divido. Yep. Uh, a friend of mine, he was, uh, so one data point was a friend of mine. He's, uh, I'm Swedish and he's half Swedish, half Polish. And he was looking to, to launch a Klarna clone in Poland. Yeah. And in order to replicate the Klarna model, you know, he wanted to become regulated as, as a lender or a bank. So he had to raise money for that. Then he needed to raise money to get a balance sheet to actually lend out to yeah. consumers. And then he needed to raise money to build the tech to kind of enable this. And I just saw he, he was struggling for like a year or two to convince investors that to trust him. Um, yeah. That was one observation that that's really difficult to launch a bank or a lender. Um, the second observation was a, uh, I came across a company in the UK. Uh, they used to be called Pay For Later, and now they're called Deco Pay. Yep. Uh, and their business model was uh, like Klarna's, but instead of them being regulated as a lender, instead of them having a balance sheet, they focused on building the loan origination, the upfront part of the transaction, and then yep. they partnered with existing incumbent lenders 
and leverage their underwriting, leverage their balance sheet, uh, and eventually allow them to manage and own the, the end consumers. So they would just sort of sit in the middle and take a cut for every transaction. Yeah. Uh, and that was the first time I'd heard about that model um, and uh, started looking around and, and there was no one else doing it. So seeing how my friend was struggling to build a bank from scratch and then seeing how this company, in my mind, had solved that problem, it was yeah. obvious that my friend should switch his model and, and, and copy this, this and, and do that in Poland. He said, Chris, no, no, no. We know the money is in the lending, so I'm not going to do that. And then I was like, hang on a second. If you're not going to do it, I'm going to bloody do it. Like, is, this is too good to, 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 to walk away from. There's room for more than one company doing this. Yeah. That was sort of the inception of the, the idea, really. And then, I mean, maybe a third nuance is that Klarna was already a very successful business in Sweden at the time. Again, like we said, it's a very old company now. So I saw that it's, it had tremendous momentum in, in Sweden, but I was living in the UK at the time and they didn't have as much traction, nor did many other players. So I felt that, well, if it can get big in Sweden, if it can become so mainstream, then surely there's room for growth and for adoption potential even here. Very interesting, yeah. So, so basically, one one uh, theme that we have quite frequently here in the podcast is, is uh, the whole embedded finance topic, where basically, um, you know, we talk to a lot of banking as a service providers and and brands that are not coming from the financial services industry but are very interested in integrating finance. So, so um, basically, there is kind of a split between the manufacturing of financial products, which are the balance sheet providers, the banks, the regulated entities at the one end, and on the other end, the enablers of the customer experience that basically own, that own the customer uh, relationship that are all about solving customer problems right where they need it and then maybe providing finance or a banking product by leveraging what they know about the customer plus using a finance product and really fundamentally improving that one how, how do you see the current state of the banking industry now if you zoom out a little bit because I think Divido is right in the middle of this whole transformation of where the market is going, obviously, because there are new distribution channels, whole new business models popping up. What's your view on like the general banking industry? If you talk, take a macro outlook, do you think the business models of um, traditional banks are kind of outdated or do you, are you a believer in these new platform business models? No, I, I think that um, banks have a, a glorious future. They've been around for thousands of, of years in, in different forms, right? That people will always gonna need to borrow money and someone's gonna have to manage the process. So I yeah. think what, what the big institutions that we think of and know of today, whether it's a Santander or HSBC or BNP, they, um, for all their faults, I guess, uh, what we can't fault them for is having built tremendous brand awareness in their local markets, having yeah. built a trust and credibility with uh, consumers and, and businesses. And you cannot fault them for uh, navigating through difficult times. Uh, you know, some of these banks have been trading for 100 plus 200 years and they're still around. Um, and that says something about the longevity uh, of of their business model, about their, you know, they might be slow, but there's yep. a reason, you know, your point about regulation and so on. Yeah. So I don't see banks going away anytime soon. But the biggest trend that I've seen sort of linking to what you were saying there is that maybe 10, 15 years ago, banks wanted to build and control and manage everything themselves in-house and they will build huge teams to do this and they would have you know servers and you know look if physical servers and yeah. things like that uh, and and they have seen how the world has moved on to a universe where actually businesses can rely on third parties to provide specialist capabilities or features they have seen how cloud computing could be made safe 
Yeah. Uh, and they are on a journey that they are partnering with, 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 uh, with others to, to be more agile, be more nimble, because that's the thing they know they can't be. Uh, and it's also a way of, of uh, um, isolating the potential risk if they're using a, a third party. So, for example, with, with Divido, um, the, the platform, you're right, that we license it to retailers, but we also license it to banks. Um, so they put their logo on it and they give it to their retailers. So uh, it allows banks to launch a new product without having to build or maintain any of the front end uh, themselves. So they can keep focusing on what they're good at, which is credit policy, risk and compliance and uh, managing customers during the life cycle of repaying debts and so on. Yeah. That's what they've been doing for hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, what they haven't been doing is buy now, pay later. And that's where, where Divide has been able to, to help them. Okay. Would you say that they're then more pushed towards the end of the value chain where they just are like, you know, that they take the credit risk, they do a little bit of underwriting, they have the balance sheet, but the customers are still are then more and more owned maybe by, you know, companies like Klarna, like companies like, um, or, or other brands that basically just integrate these binopulator solutions provided ultimately by banks, but they like the, you know, the, the space between the bank and the end customer kind of gets more and more gets larger in most cases. I guess it, it, it's a question of business models at the end of the day. Do you still own the value chain end to end and the distribution as well? As you mentioned, like banks need to partner, they need to find new partners that help them to get to these customers. Or um, are you rebuilding your whole model around having a low enough cost base to just provide the balance sheet and the underwriting. Yeah, so I, I don't think the banks are just like a dumb balance sheet. They, they add a lot of more value than, than that. So for example, the, the big banks, they all of them, they bank the biggest retailers. You know, yeah. Apple is banking with Goldman and I don't, I don't know exactly, probably Citibank and probably also Bank of America. Uh, here in the UK, HSBC is banking John Lewis. They're banking um MS, like some of the biggest retail companies in, in the country. And they have long-standing, very deep relationships with these big uh, clients. You know, they don't just do um, credit cards, co-brand credit cards for them. They do their payrolls or they do their FX. They do their, they're, they're so embedded with their big clients that there's no way that someone like a niche fintech can go in and like, eject HSBC from M&S. They even have a, a joint venture, uh, a joint venture bank, M&S Bank. I mean, it yeah. doesn't get more sticky than that. I, I don't know the details of the relationships, but I can imagine it's a 10, 20 year, you know, in perpetuity type contract. So long winded way of saying, I guess, that banks are way more than just a, a balance sheet. Uh, yep. It's the ability to establish and maintain the relationships over a long time that touches many aspects of their clients' businesses that will allow them to, to remain in that position. To your point then about the end consumer, maybe they are less loyal because they will probably just go where it's the cheapest or, or whatever. Yeah. So I think in the future, uh, maybe, you know, when my parents grew up, they had one bank for their whole lives, uh, whereas I have like 10 different banks. Uh, I think maybe the consumers will kind of hedge their bets and spread their loyalty a little bit more. Yeah. Um, Makes sense. I don't yeah. think that's detrimental for HSBC. I mean, I still have my mortgage 
with HSBC. I mean, that's like a huge transaction. It doesn't come near the kind of money that Tide or Starling ever is going to make on me from whatever services I'm using from them. So, All right. No, that makes a lot of sense, definitely. And um, basically, also to come back to what you said at the beginning about incentives, um, how banks operate, how they're maybe trained to avoid risk. That basically brings me to the book that you just wrote um, and just published with Wiley, Transactional to um, Transformational, How Banks Innovate. Um, let's maybe touch really quickly on the key topics that you um, that you basically um, touch upon in, in the book as well. Transactional to transformational. Is there a specific meaning behind that um, met metaphor, or how do you how do you explain that? Also, the thinking is that uh, contrary, perhaps to the point you were just making around our banks becoming stupid balance sheets or like passive kind of processors. Yeah. I like to think that banks like 100 years ago, they were more simplistic. It was money in, money out, yep. um, a very transactional. Uh, whereas where banks need to transition going forward is that they can't rely on, on, on the transactional aspect of the business. They need to have those relationships. They need to have those value-added services. They need to be able to open to disrupt themselves. I mean, for example, one of the banks featured um, is uh, Santander in, yeah. in South America, in Brazil. Um, and there, the case that, that the book describes is, is them launching a challenger bank, which the mandate was to disrupt Santander. Uh, yeah. Santander's risk profile was such that they would only bank customers of a certain credit profile, um, whereas this challenger bank was basically going after the unbanked, to the underbanked, to the underserved, which meant they had to adopt a higher risk appetite. And that's a pretty gutsy, pretty ambitious sort of uh, idea that, you know, rather than just that playing in, in your safe space, you're willing to, to experiment. And what I mean by that is that that is transformational for a bank to say, I'm going to launch a competitor. May yep. the best man or woman, you know, win this race. That, that's awesome. And that's what we should celebrate, I think, as an industry or, you know, what yep. excites me as an advisor um, to get involved in. Amazing. So so you already said it, like Santander, in this case, uh, launched a new bank. And basically, the theme in your book is buy, build or partner. Yeah, I find that very interesting. And obviously, I'm sure, I mean, there's a difference between huge universal banks that are operating globally versus like a smaller local bank in, like, let's say, Germany. Not everyone has the same risk appetite, the same budget to do all of this. Like just shortly in a nutshell, do you think buy, build, partner is something that any bank can do? Or is there a specific approach that you would recommend that um, you can also take if you don't have, um, you know, larger resources? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it, the banks that, that I featured is 16 banks uh, from, from all over the world and of different sizes and different life stages. Uh, and most of them had examples of where they've acquired a competitor or a smaller business, examples of where they've partnered with a third party uh, or where they have um, built something in-house. So it was more a question of... Uh, kind of picking the best example from each bank and just having an even distribution of, of examples across those themes that, that you mentioned. So I think most banks, they, they seem to have the capability or the opportunities to, to, to do any of these strategies. So there's, there's no one that's wrong. It's just that uh, yeah. you, know, you should probably do a range of them to be successful. There, there is a bank in the UK called Metrobank, which is yeah. featured in the book, and they're not one of the big banks. I don't know exactly where they rank, maybe number five or 10, somewhere there. Uh, but the case that I featured in the book is them acquiring a fintech. Yep. a peer-to-peer -peer lender. And you perhaps wouldn't necessarily have thought that a small or medium-sized bank in the UK will be buying pretty cool fintech companies. Yep. But but this fintech company, as, as uh, circumstances that had it, found itself in some financial difficulties. And Metrobank was incredibly fast to smell that, to spot that, to approach them. 
and convince yep. them that they were appropriate an appropriate home for their for this business. Uh, and that's what the the story that the case tells really uh, how Metro Bank acquired a rate setter uh, and incorporating that as part of um, uh, their business. So yeah, large or small, they can can do yeah. things. Amazing. Yeah, no, I think also for the partnerships, I guess that's that's one of the uh, instead of buying or building own uh, solutions, um, in my experience, partnerships might also be a really good way to speed up innovation. Or as you, I mean, in your case with Divido, you have partnerships with many different lenders that could then potentially like um, use a new distribution channel, which they otherwise would not have. So I guess there are plenty of opportunities and amazing, um, amazing stories and case studies as well in your book. I also like the one from BBVA uh, setting up a new uh, corporate investment vehicle that operates quite differently because of the you know regulatory nature and so on. So I guess there are many, many different opportunities. Um, but overall, what you say, Bible partner, obviously for me, like that falls all under like, let's say innovation activity at banks. Usually it's contrasted between innovation, like building your future versus maintaining and running your core business that still obviously brings in the, the cash. But would you would you say that it is urgent that banks need to follow such strategies to really have a separate stream of Bible partner to basically build up new the future of banking as a separate uh, kind of innovation activity? Yeah, I think um, it doesn't matter which one of those three they do. They just have to do them, you know, maybe yeah. one or two, but not doing none, none of them is not an option. Yeah. All right, that's a uh, good, uh, good good advice. Definitely, I, I would definitely recommend uh, the listeners to check out the book. It's now available on Amazon. Um, and um, as I said, yeah, because I've been when I was part of Holvi, it was quite amazing to see how BBVA has basically, um, yeah, invested in fintechs, built up own fintechs. Obviously, not everything has been a big success, but I guess that's part of the of the journey as well. And uh, you can't uh, expect uh, every every single innovation activity to to yield a lot of positive results, right? So it's it's um, it's I guess it's it's part of um, of the learning journey. There's actually a funny story that's not in the book so i met with seb they're one of the big banks in in sweden they have a corporate venture capital fund as well but until recently they were not allowed to invest in fintech because it was like too close for comfort and you know they're really gutted that they missed out on klarna and played and um yeah, i mean loads of these uh, fintechs that that they could have had the opportunity to invest in but didn't so now they're changing that but The pressure is definitely rising. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's it's amazing. Yeah, so yeah, I would like to thank you for taking your time. Um, I think we scratched a lot of very interesting topics, and um, obviously there are a lot of resources that uh, you, our listeners can um, can use to dive deeper into these topics. Um, especially if you're interested in Bible Partner, I think that's now a really common way to structure innovation activities, especially at, at big banks. So um, uh, for me, that that's a great resource to um, to rely upon. So thanks, Chris, uh, for uh, taking the time and um, sharing your insights with us today. Thank you very much for having me.